Jeroboam. Jeroboam and his son. He had a son who died. Elijah. <laughs> that was uh, the son that reigned. <coughs> Same names as Aaron's sons. Nadab. Jeroboam, Nadab. Then new dynasty with Basha and his son Elah. Then new dynasty, if you can call it that, with. Zimri, Zimri the seven-day wonder, and then Omri. new dynasty with Omri, Omri, and, Omri and that's where we're at. Yeah. We've just been seeing Omri's kingship, and now he dies, and his son takes his place, and so First Kings sixteen twenty-nine to thirty-four. Now Ahab the son of Omri became king over Israel in the thirty-eighth year of Asa king of Judah, and Ahab the son of Omri reigned over Israel in Samaria twenty-two years. Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. It came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, that he married Jezebel the daughter of Ethbal king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worshipped him. So he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Ahab also made the Asherah. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hiel the Bethelite built Jericho. He laid its foundations with the loss of Abram his firstborn and set up its gates with the loss of his youngest son, Sagub according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. So, Ahab, Omri's son, takes over and reigns 22 years. Uh, how was he? Very, very bad. Worse than all that were before him, which is pretty wild, because Omri, his father, had been the epitome of evil to date, but suddenly the award was snatched from him and given to his son Ahab. He was worse yet. And part of that worseness comes from his marriage to Jezebel. Jezebel. And what's her pedigree? Daughter of the king of Sidon. She wasn't an Israelite at all. She was the Sidonian princess. And so this forms an alliance between Israel and their neighbor to the north, which politically may be helpful, but wow, what a disaster spiritually. Because what does she bring down to Israel with her? Yes, a quantum leap in the history of apostasy. They're not just worshiping God under the image of golden calves. Now they're worshiping a whole other God. She brings all of her horde of Baal enthusiasts with her, and uh, it's, it's just disastrous for Israel. You know, way worse than what things have uh, been in the past. And what's worse, she wears the pants in the family. And uh, she is just, you know, butchers the Lord's prophets, and is a, just terrible all the way around. So this is a notorious husband and wife couple, probably about the uh, most notorious in scripture. And uh, the text says in verse 33, interestingly, that Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. It's interesting the way it says that. He provoked the Lord to anger. 
I would suggest from that that anger is not like a natural divine attribute. God was angry because he was provoked. You know, if there were no sin, there would be no anger. It's not something that God just has as a, an inherent quality. It's his response to men's sins. You know, he outraged God. You know, probably, I mean, for his sons, for example, the couple we know their names of, they have names with Jehovah in them. So probably what Ahab does is to worship Jehovah and Baal and the Asherah and whatever else. How would God feel about that? Jealous. Yes. Betrayed, hurt, jealous. It's like a woman, well, I'll live with my husband and Tom and Joe and John and, you know, just kind of I'll try them all out. Well, how would her husband feel about that? Probably not very pleased. Probably not. If he cared anything about her, he wouldn't be pleased. And so Ahab just provokes the Lord, <laughs> you know, worse than anybody has, all the ones who are before him. And uh, notice what happens. It's kind of thrown in here in verse 34 about this Heil the Bethelite. What did he do? Which God had said in Joshua 6, after it was destroyed by the hand of God, uh, that anybody who would rebuild, Jezeb, uh, Je uh, rebuild Jericho, that's the word, it all starts with J around here, um, that they would uh, pay for that with the loss of their oldest and their youngest son. Now, we're not sure what this means when it says he laid his foundation with the loss of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates with the loss of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord. I don't know whether this means, um, you know, they quote-unquote accidentally died, <laughs> you know, at those times, which shows that God just took their lives, or does it mean in this corrupt polytheistic climate of Ahab that this guy sacrifices his sons at those two intervals? I think either of those is a possibility, either of those is really sad, and uh it is a preview of coming attractions because Ahab will suffer the same thing. Both of his sons will lose their lives. And, uh, you know, Israel wouldn't escape disaster either. So, you know, this just, just typifies how bad things are in Ahab's Israel. This is the time when Jericho is rebuilt with the loss of this guy's firstborn and youngest son. Comments and thoughts on this section? Do you think Ahab had anything to do with Jericho being rebuilt? Just because... I mean, if it was against God, he was probably in favor of it, but it doesn't say. Other thoughts? Well, chapter 17, verses uh, 1 to uh, 7. Now, Elijah the Tishbite was of the settlers of Gilead, said Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Go away from here, and turn eastward, and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. And it shall be that you shall drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and lived by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. 
And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he would drink from the brook. And it happened after a while that the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Now this begins quite a section in First Kings that really focuses a lot on this great prophet Elijah. And uh, thinking about Elijah's work, perhaps it would be helpful to talk a moment about the background concepts of, of the Israelites at this point in time. We, we, we hinted at this a minute ago. But from an Israelite standpoint right here and now, they would see Israelite religion and Canaanite religion as complementing each other. You know, they did not see this as being a contradiction. They saw this as being kind of a joint venture. They, they worship God, they worship Baal, and they worship this and that. Which is what Satan tries to get us to do today. Kind of think that good and evil are compatible. You know, you can kind of do both. And, uh, you know, they're freed of their old restraints and, and the disciplines that had cramped them so much. Now they can worship the God of their choice. Worship on all, uh, them all if they want. And, and, and with this kind of climate, God sends this great prophet. They need a great prophet. And Elijah just pops on the scene. You know, we've never heard of him before, and all of a sudden, he's just there. You know, now Elijah the Dishbite, who is of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab. So he just, he's just right there. And uh, someone has said he comes in with a storm and out with a whirlwind. Uh, he, just, he just pops in and then he's, he's gone at a particular time. What do you know about Elijah, personally? What do you know about his background? He's a Tishbite. He's a Tishbite. I believe that pretty much covers it. You know, there's a lot of things we might want to know about it. You know, where did he go to seminary? You know, do you have a wife and kids? Is he a sports fan? You know, does he like being a prophet? You know, and so forth and so on. There's all kinds of questions we'd ask. You know, doesn't really matter. None of that really matters. He's a prophet. He's got a message from God. That's what matters. And that's what he's going to deliver. And his message, whoa. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives... Before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. You know, he throws down the gauntlet. God's very life is on the line. By the word of God, no dew or rain for these years. Now think about how appropriate that was. Baal was the god of what? Rain. Rain, storm, fertility, those are all tied together, obviously. And uh, so he is uh, directly striking at Baal's role as the rain god and the vegetation god. We're going to see just what kind of a fertility god Baal is. You know, is he up to the challenge? And, you know, if, if, if Baal can't produce in the area of his greatest expertise, then that ought to be a shattering blow to his reputation. You know, what an appropriate challenge. I mean, we're going to take it right to his backyard. And uh, not only no rain, but no dew for three years. That's pretty incredible. And uh, so, so it's almost like God sends his greatest prophet for the worst era. You know, Elijah. It, there, there's, it's really hard to overestimate the impact and importance of Elijah. I mean... Think about where else we find Elijah. 
Where do we find him in the New Testament? Yeah, he's the one, the one with Moses that appeared with Jesus there on the Mount of Transfiguration. Would you have chosen Elijah? And think about when the Old Testament closes, who does the Malachi say he's going to send before the Lord? Elijah. Elijah. Now it's an Elijah, but, but Elijah's the foreshadowing of John the Baptist. I mean, Elijah's quite a, quite a prophet. Uh, didn't write a book like some of the prophets did, but wow, he has a major impact. And did, don't you like the way he says that? You know, does he leave any loopholes in that statement about there not being any rain? <laughs> you know, there's no contingencies, there's no escape clauses, not going to be any rain. Well, that's, that's a problem, actually, because what about poor Elijah? <laughs> How are we going to take care of him? What does God do? Puts him beside a brook and sends ravens to him with takeout. Yeah, that's right. You know, God is in charge of his creatures, so he uh, brings the ravens in to bring him bread and meat, and he drinks of the brook, and so he's taken care of by the Lord in the drought. Until what? There's no more brook. The brook dries up. Uh-oh. <laughs> kind of reminds me of some churches All right, comments or questions through verse 7. It reminds me of the plagues in Egypt and how each of those plagues corresponded to an Egyptian deity. Yes. And so it was like, you know, ooh, let's, let's take on the Nile. Let's take on the, the god of the frogs and, you know, and, and whatever and straight on down the line. So the same kind of. Yeah, absolutely. God takes the fight right to him. You know, okay, we'll, we'll go right to your, your greatest strength. God loves doing things like that. Displays his power and glory more than anything. Well, it's kind of like, if, if you think of the, the Greek and Roman um, deities, how they all had their own special thing. Right. You wouldn't, if you tried to challenge the god of the storm in basket weaving, they go, <laughs> look, that's not fair. That's not what I do. You you go talk to my sister. She's the one who does the weaving, you know. But here it's like, like you were saying, this is what it. This is your your specialty. So your God, strongest point. God always gives himself handicaps. You know, you think about. It. I mean, God displays his power more greatly when he does do that. All right, I'll challenge you right there in your best game. You know, what, what, what would you think about an athlete that he'll play you in whatever your best sport is? You name your best sport, he'll beat you at that. That'd be quite an athlete. We don't know we have any athletes like that. Can you imagine an Olympian who says, I'm good enough at all this. I'll beat any Olympian in any, in any area. Well, that'd be ridiculous. Nobody could do that. But God can beat you. You just name your, name your thing. God will whip you in that. Other thoughts? What's a tish bite? I don't know. Are they, are they painful or do they inflame? What we do know is... <laughs> That's a tick bite. That's a tick yeah. bite. It was of the settlers of Gilead, so it apparently was on the right-hand side of the Jordan River, but I don't know where so Tishbe was. Tish bite, you know? I, he's the only one I can remember. If there's any other tish bites that hasn't come to my attention. Elisha. Elisha was not a tish bite. 
Uh, he, I don't know. But he was called in chapter in chapter 19, verse 19. He was uh, of Abel Mahola. So he was an Abel Maholite. Be thankful Elijah's just a Tishbite. <laughs> Settlers of Gilead, would that be the three tribes? One of those? Yep. It's a All right, eight to sixteen. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and stay there. Behold, I have commanded a widow to provide for you. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please get me a little water in a jar that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. But she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have no bread, only a handful of flour and a bowl and a little oil in a jar. And behold, I am gathering a few sticks that I may go in and prepare for me and my son that we may eat it and die. Sorry, I don't know if I read that right. Then Elijah said to her, Do not fear, go and do as you have said. But make me a little bread cake from it first, and bring it out to me. And afterward you may make one for yourself, and one for your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, The bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor the jar of oil shall be empty, until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. So she went and did according to the word of Elijah, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The bowl of the flour was not exhausted, nor did the jar of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through Elijah. Pretty impressive here. When the brook dries up, he needs a new source of sustenance, and God sends him where? Or just to, to a widow's home. And what's fascinating about her is her mailing address. Where was she from? Zarephath, a city of Sidon. Now, what's interesting about her being from Sidon? Absolutely. This is an in-your-face tactic, if there ever was one. You know, he provides for Elijah right there in Jezebel's own backyard. You know, that is, that's hilarious. And we're going to find out later that Ahab has searched far and wide. He's entered into contact with diplomats from every country to find out if they've granted asylum to Elijah. He can't find him anywhere. Guess where he was? God hit him out right there in uh, uh, Jezebel's daddy-in-law's uh, you know, kingdom. So that's just really, uh, really impressive. And of all the people you wouldn't think would be able to provide for you, a widow? And what do you think when you think of a widow? Poor. Weak, vulnerable. You know, you would expect her to be the first one to go, you know, when the drought hit. You know, how's she going to provide for herself and her son? So, I mean, of all the people and places, God could have said, Elijah, this looks like the least probable to provide for him. And in fact, you know, he asked her to bring some, some water and then bring a piece of bread. <laughs> and that's when she tells Elijah what? We've got nothing. We're going to take the very last little bit, make it, and die. All there is left. 
got, I got enough for another little cake. Me and my son are going to eat, and it'll be over. And what does Elijah say? Oh, well, do it anyway. Give me the cake. Whoa! I mean, look. You've got a son. This is the last meal you can provide him. You're going to give it to this stranger? Now, granted, what has he told her? Do not fear. Yeah. And after you make it for me and bring it to me, then make it for you and your son. He's implying that there's going to be the resources there. But wow, that is hard. You know, when God asks you for what you don't have, <laughs> you know, she says, you know, uh, I don't really have it. You know, I'm just getting this for me and my son. You know, I have no bread. <laughs> you know, I've just got this little bit of flour and oil. I'm making it for my son, and it's going to be the last meal. But, but that's what God asks from people. Now, you think about it. When God wanted to feed the 5,000, what did he tell the disciples to do? Sit them down in groups of 50 and... And what do you tell them, tell them first? You feed them. You give them something to eat. Uh, we don't have it. Five sandwiches? Let's see, how many ways can we divide those? You know, we can't. Now, that's what God does. I feel like I haven't got any energy left. I haven't got any time left. I haven't got any patience left. I haven't got any money left. I haven't got any love left. I haven't got any emotional capacity left. And then I'm put in this situation demanding the very things I'm running low on. You know, God basically says, okay, give it to me anyway. Just talking to a guy today who uh, is a real good guy, but he's really, really depressed right now. And, you know, he said, I just don't have the energy to do anything. And he's a young guy, you know, whatever. But I said, well, you know... This is kind of counterintuitive, but if you're like physically really exhausted, you know, I can see rest as something that helps. But when you're depressed, rest makes you with less energy. What you have to do is you have to just make yourself act without the energy. And the more you do, the more energy you get. You know, God will ask us to do things. It's like, but I can't do this. I don't have it. Doesn't matter. Do it anyway. God won't ask it if he doesn't. If he won't provide it. So, she. How can I do this? But she does. She trusts his word. And sure enough, there's enough oil and flour there every day to make the last cake again. This is the daily drama of the jar and the jug. You know, every day her faith is tested again. You know, because there's just, you know, the supply. The, the bowl of flour was not exhausted, nor did the jar of oil become empty. He didn't suddenly stock her up with, you know, 25-pound bags of flour and, you know, a couple gallons of oil or whatever. She just keeps having it there. That's what we do. If we will use what we've got, God will provide. You know, isn't that the principle in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9? where he encourages the Corinthians to follow the example of Macedonians who gave according to their ability and beyond their ability. And he said, God will provide the seed to sow. You know, 
God will multiply. You give what you don't have and God will provide it in, in whatever area. You know, so this is just a tremendous, inspiring example. What would you have done in this situation? Comments and thoughts. I, I like your point about that, uh, that they were willing to give, even though they didn't really have the means to. Of course, we see examples of that, like the Macedonians and Second Corinthians. But I was thinking, you know, isn't there a sense also in which it would be bad or foolish to do something like that? Thinking about, like, the context of First Timothy five eight, or if you don't provide for your own household, you've denied the faith more than infidel. It's like. You know, well, I'm going to help these people, but now I'm a needy Christian, so it's like, that doesn't quite make sense to, you know, I'm going to give my entire paycheck to the church, you know, but now I need to be supported type thing. Yes, but you know the difference. God said to do it here. Yeah. Whenever God says to do it, <laughs> then we do it. Resources are not. Mm-hmm. Now, for us just to decide, well, I'm going to do this when God hasn't said... Or when God may have said something else. You know, you might come up with an extreme example. What about somebody who gives everything he makes to the church and he doesn't pay the people he owes money to? Now, what does the Bible says about, say, about paying your debts? Yeah, don't owe anything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, that would obviously, you're not trusting in God in that situation. You're not doing what God said to do. <laughs> you know, so that's, it, it, this is when God has told us to do it. But so often we're just like, Man, I know I need to do this. I just don't have the strength. You know, I know how to quit this sin, but I just can't. It. I just. I just. I can't do it. You know, it's just not. It's not in me. You know, or whatever. We will often do this can't business because I just. I just don't have. I don't have what it takes. Did God tell you to? Well, I. I did, but I can't do it. He would not tell you if you couldn't do it. So. If he tells us to give our last meal, then that's what we do. As impossible as it looks. Yeah, that's exactly. I mean, doesn't God love impossible situations? You know, when, when God sends Gideon with 300 men against the Midianites, <laughs> yeah, right. You know, what, what in the world is he thinking? I mean, why did David fight Goliath? And so forth and so on. You know, did, it, I, think, I think we are really foolish if we limit God to only things we think are possible. God is the God of the impossible all the time, all over the Bible. We're like, I just, no, that's too, that's too, that, he could not do that. How do I know what he could do? I mean, he sure got a good track record of doing things that he can't do. (laughs) Other thoughts? Well, 17 to 24. Now it came about after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became sick. And his sickness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. So she said to Elijah, What do I have to do with you, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my iniquity to remembrance and to put my son to death. He said to her, Give me your son. Then he took him from her bosom and carried him up to the upper room where he was living and laid him on his own bed. He called to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, 
Have you also brought calamity to the widow with whom I am staying by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and called to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray you, let this child's life return to him. The Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child returned to him, and he revived. Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother, and Elijah said, See, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord is the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Now this is an important story and lesson. This widow has been doing what? The right thing by providing. Wow. I mean, under some of the most difficult of conditions, you know, enduring one of the hardest tests she had been providing for Elijah. She is a faithful servant of God. I don't care if she is living inside. And what happens? Her son dies. He gets sick and dies. How could that be? You know, she is a woman of great faith. Why would God let that happen to her son? Well, I don't know all the answers to that. But I do know that you can't just imagine you're going to be exempt from these kind of problems because you serve the Lord. That's not going to be the case. I don't know what all God had in his mind, but the son died anywhere you want to look at. And, you know, is that so much different than the rest of this story? You know, that river dried up on Elijah. You know, and the the channel of supply is is destitute you know i mean everything that's happened so far there have been complications and roadblocks and obstacles and you know down moments and things like that so you know i think that's that's very uh interesting for us to see that you can be doing exactly the right thing and some terrible tragedy can occur and you know when it does a lot of times we're like well, so God doesn't answer prayer anymore. So, well, well, so much didn't do any good to serve God then, did it? You know, we, we will hold God hostage to do everything our way. And if he doesn't, our first thought, well, God's worthless. I'm not saying that's all of our first thought, but I think that is for a lot of people. I hear those kinds of things. And... She, on the other hand, I think does exactly the right thing. She turns to Elijah. Now, she's pretty upset with him. I think what she is saying in verse 18 is that Elijah being there has focused a lot of God's attention on her, and he's resolved to punish her for some childhood sins he'd forgotten about now that he's looking at her so much. I think that's kind of the idea. And what does Elijah do? Takes him upstairs and prays. Yeah, he prays. He stretches himself on top of the child three times and says, Oh, Lord, my God, I pray you let this child's life return to him. And he does. And he raises him back from the dead. Wow. That is, that's really impressive. You don't have just a ton of resurrections in the Bible. Right? What are the others? Elisha. 
Elisha raised yeah, the Shunammite woman's son. Jesus raised one when they were carrying him, like to bury the, the, the widow of Nain's son. Jairus' daughter. daughter. Lazarus. Lazarus. Jesus. Jesus. The man who touched Elisha's bones. Uh-huh. Very good. The man who touched Elisha's bones. Where's that found? Mm, That's a hard one to find. Second <laughs> Kings 13, 20 and 21, I think. <laughs> who else? Dorcas. Dorcas. Yeah. And? Eutychus. And? Yeah. 500. <laughs> oh, yeah, 500 saints. When we don't know how many, but yeah, a bunch in yeah. Matthew 27. Uh, when Jesus died. Yeah, or when he was raised, perhaps. I think the graves were open when he died, and they rose when he rose. But that's perhaps oh, that's a, not a for sure thing. But Yeah, that, I think that's pretty well got him. I can't think of any others. Yeah, that was good, though. I can't believe you came up with it. Although those pretty yeah. cool. Especially Elisha and the ones that were raised when Jesus died. I think those two are the ones we tend to forget. So so it isn't an everyday of the week occurrence, even though we came up with several of them in the whole course of Bible history, at least that we're told about. Um, I need some scripture references. What are the names? Uh, that's Luke 7, 11 to 17. Lazarus. Lazarus is John 11. Jairus. Jairus' daughter is in Mark 5, 21 to 43. Dorcas. Dorcas is Acts 9, 36 to 43. And Eutychus. Eutychus mm-hmm. is Acts 27 to 12. And the Shunammites. Uh, that would be Second uh, Kings 4. Um, that whole chapter is pretty much about Shunammites. And the uh, the ones with Jesus' death are his Matthew 27. So, uh, that's an amazing thing. And and of all those then, which one was the first one? This one? This one, yeah. As far as we are told in the Bible, I don't know of any earlier resurrection than this. So isn't that quite an amazing thing? I mean, you, you wouldn't have thought that. But now you think about it. You know, how many times when God lets a tragedy occur in a faithful servant of his, does he turn around and do something that you would never have expected? You know, I mean, take Joseph in Egypt. (laughs) Did you ever expect this to turn out to make him vice Pharaoh? I mean, there's all kinds of times when God will take, you know, something like that and, well, later it's like, Wow, I didn't think he was going to do that. Never even dreamed about that. So trust God. Even if the terrible tragedy of of tragedies occurs, some horrible thing happens, her son dies. I mean, she's been doing all this for Elijah, trusting God, sacrificing herself, and her son dies. How could God do that? Remember this the next time you just feel overwhelmed because... I just can't believe God did this. And the thing I hear the most is, but I prayed. I prayed for him to get well and God didn't answer. You know, what, what we need to think about is, well, did you pray that prayer if God's will be done? May God's will be done, if it's God's will. If you did, then who are you to say that the prayer wasn't answered? You prayed. 
as, as God wills. If you didn't, what in the world were you thinking? <laughs> when would, should we ever pray that our will be done? We would always choose to pray the Lord's will, not mine. Thoughts and comments? I was just thinking that even though this may be the first resurrection recorded chronologically in the Bible, I was thinking Job's family might have happened before this. Right? His children would have been raised. I don't believe they were raised. I think he had think more so. children. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. That's, that's my take. Never mind. Yeah. Might be a debatable issue. I mean, if you think of it like that, then in one sense, Isaac was raised. Right, yeah. So, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. All right, well, very good. Um, chapter 18, 1 to 15. Now it happened after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah.